Good morning, everyone. Welcome to Portico Church Arlington. It's a loud and raucous crew today, probably because we have some visitors in town, I'm sure. We're doing child dedications at the end of our service, so that's always a really exciting time. Welcome to all of you, whether you are a member here, whether you are a friend or family visiting from out of town, or whether you're new to our church. We're so glad that you're here and hope that you will feel welcome, and more importantly, hope that you will also meet the living and perfect God. Um, and so that's our hope for us. It's a hope that we have every Sunday. It's a pretty, um, pretty high bar, but we've given everything that we need to accomplish that. And so I'm confident that um, the Lord has something for you this morning, regardless of kind of which of those categories you find yourselves. If you are visiting and want to get more connected to the life of Portico Church Arlington, our awesome hospitality team, Nate and Stephanie Tice, will be out in the hallway after the service. They'll be wearing some blue lanyards, and they would be happy to connect you more to the groups and the teams and the classes that we have at Portico Church. I would also love to meet you too, so don't be shy. I would be happy to talk to you and help you get connected as well. Well, we are continuing on in our series of Galatians, and um, I know because I'm reading this and I'm also talking to some of you that we're all kind of like, oh man, this is feeling repetitive. It's feeling like we're kind of hearing a lot of similar things week by week. And that is because you are. It is repetitive. Paul develops his theme over and over and over again. And so today we are kind of entering into a new um, kind of transition part of the book of Galatians. We're in chapter 4. And so far in chapters 1 through 3, Paul has really given his best defense of the gospel. So he started out by proving that he is a legitimate apostle, a legitimate messenger from God to bring the gospel of Jesus Christ to the Gentile world. And so he reminds them of that. And after that, he goes into what the gospel is, and specifically at the core of the gospel is this concept of justification by faith, the truth that Sinners are made righteous, not by anything that they do, and not by their own works, but by trusting in Jesus Christ. And when you trust in Jesus, God proclaims, he pronounces you, he declares you righteous. Justification by faith. And justification by faith, as important, as essential as it is, is not the end of the gospel. And so today we see that actually what happens in our salvation, in our justification, is that we are also adopted into God's family. So no, no longer are we criminals guilty under the law. We are declared righteous. But even more than that, We're declared to be sons, to be heirs, to be within the family of God. And so this is um, a little bit of a bridge to the end of the book, because he's going to start talking about what it looks like to live as 
a child of God towards the end. But if we jump there, we'll totally undo everything that he's already done. And so we need to really kind of spend some time this morning reconciling the fact that God has made us his children by faith. And so you can turn with me. We're going to be in Galatians 4, verses 1 through 7 this morning. Galatians 4, verses 1 through 7. And you can read along. The words will also be up there on the screen. I mean that the heir, as long as he is a child, is no different from a slave, though he is the owner of everything, but he is under guardians and managers until the date set by his father. In the same way, we also, when we were children, were enslaved to the elementary principles of the world. But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law, so that we might receive adoption as sons. And because you are sons... God has sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. So you are no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir through God. Please pray with me. Father, we come to you this morning And we claim that status. We claim that position of you as our father and us as your child because of your son. And so, Lord, I ask that that truth, as much as it fills our minds with wonder and awe, that it would also fill our hearts, that we would experience you this morning as our perfect Father. That we would experience and realize that the Spirit has been sent to us to communicate to us, to cry to us that we are your children. Lord, help us believe that. Help us to leave all of the different ways that we enslave ourselves. Help us to trust you, to depend on you as your children. We ask all of this in Jesus' name. Amen. Anybody here enjoy being dependent? Do you enjoy being contingent? Do you enjoy being at the mercy of somebody or something else? Do you like sitting in traffic? Do you like waiting in lines at the airport? Dependent on the TSA agents to move people through? Do you like being sick? Do you like being injured? I know that I don't. This is one of the biggest kind of like probably tension points in my own life is I really like being independent. I I really like being free. I really like being autonomous. I don't like depending on anybody. And I think probably, well, I know that all of us are like that. 
because we come by it honestly. We come by it honestly because this is the story of humanity. If you go all the way back into the garden, God speaks and the world comes into existence. He makes everything out of nothing. It's just his will being expressed through his word that causes creation to exist. And he sets up these different spheres and these different places, and he fills those places with things, with creatures who are dependent on those places. And then he creates Adam and Eve, and he puts them in the garden. And he gives them work to do. But what he doesn't do is make them independent. They were created to depend on him. And this is the essence of when God puts the tree of the knowledge of good and evil in the midst of the garden and tells Adam and Eve, do not eat of that tree because on the day that you eat of it, you will surely die. God knows that what that tree symbolizes is independence from him. And the serpent knows that as well. And so the serpent comes into the garden and he tells Adam and Eve, he says, you know why God doesn't want you to eat that? Because he knows that if you eat of it, you'll be like him. You'll be like God. You'll be independent, autonomous, free. You could do whatever you want. And they saw, and they were tempted, and they gave in, and they ate, cutting themselves off from the good dependence that God had put into their nature to depend on him, to trust him for everything because God had created everything for them. And so that's the story of human existence is that this instinct, this impulse to be independent is kind of written into the fabric of our being. We want to be like God. We don't want to be like a creature. We don't want to be dependent. We want to be free. Now here's the problem. What the serpent didn't tell Adam and Eve, what he doesn't tell us, is that what he holds out as freedom, being like God, it turns into slavery. Because Adam and Eve, they weren't independent. They weren't autonomous, even in their decision to eat of that tree. But they exchanged God for the serpent. They listened to the serpent. And so they attached themselves to a wicked slave master. They enslaved themselves. And so this text is Paul kind of pleading. He's continuing to plead with the Galatians to forsake the slavery that they've been rescued out of. Last week, we used this image of um, imprisonment, being in jail. This week, the image is just slightly different. Now we're talking about being a slave or being a child. And so Paul wants us, God wants us, through this text, to attune our hearts to the cry of freedom. 
to attune our hearts to the cry of freedom, to receive it. And so before we jump into it, we have to remind ourselves that we were created to depend on God. And yet we have been living in deception as we have been enslaved to that desire for independence, that desire to be autonomous. And so the first place that we're going to start in this passage is looking at the source of slavery. Paul says in these first couple voices, or in these first couple verses, there it is, that there is no difference between an heir and a slave as long as they're children. They both kind of function the same in the household. And that's because a good dad back in this day would not give the inheritance to a child who would waste it, who hadn't been trained on how to use the inheritance. And so, like everyone else, the child was under authority. Even though there was an inheritance that was future, a reality that really did control his destiny, he hadn't inherited it yet. And so Paul is reminding the Galatians that the, their existence under the law, their existence in the Mosaic Covenant, was intentional, but it wasn't final. It was provisional. It was to get them to the fullness of time to that coming of age when Jesus came and he brought the gospel. And so what he's battling here is that he's seeing a bunch of people who, having received their inheritance, are kind of forsaking it, giving it away, exchanging it, and going back to something that was provisional. And they're doing this because of that instinct. And it's the same instinct that we feel. That instinct to be independent, to not be contingent. Because that was, that's the disorienting nature of the gospel. Is that you don't do anything. You receive it. It's a gift. It's given to you. Even your ability to believe it is a gift that is given to you by God. And so we receive it. We're dependent again. And there's part of us that doesn't want to depend on God. It's that old nature that's been passed down through the line of Adam and Eve to all of humanity where we want to be in control. We want to dictate the terms of our life. And some of us, especially in this area, we get really good at it. We get really good at looking at the things of the, of the earth, at looking at our own abilities, and using them in such a way where it's like we can kind of fool ourselves into thinking that we are actually better at this than God. We would never say that out loud because it sounds arrogant, but functionally that's what happens. You think, you know what? I know that God hasn't really 
promised me this. He hasn't promised me this type of financial success. He hasn't promised me this type of career success. He hasn't promised me the type of happiness that I want. So I think I'm going to achieve it. I'm going to do it. I'm going to earn it. And as we get good at this, we kind of, it's a little bit of a feedback loop. Like we get the thing that we're after, and so we want more of it, and we keep going, and we keep going, and we keep going. And now you're seeing the source of the slavery. The source of the slavery is that it never stops. And at some point down the road, at some point in that progression, even when what you are pursuing is a good thing, all of a sudden, you're going to realize that you need it. And after that, you'll realize that you need it and you don't even want it anymore. But you're still stuck. You're still enslaved to it. This is what that feels like. It feels like needing to climb the next rung, needing to achieve more, needing to have your kids excelling above all the other kids, needing to have your home perfectly in order, needing to have your social circle exactly how you want it, to design your life in such a way that it brings you fulfillment. And then you realize, I'm not fulfilled. So you do it again and again and again. And it's the cycle of slavery. And this happens with everything. It happens with everything. It's happening in Galatian, in, in the churches in Galatia, with the law. A, right? It's from God. The law is good. It was useful. God gave it to them to be a blessing to them and to prepare them for Jesus. But what they did was they started separating the law from the lawgiver. And pretty soon they had totally forgot the intention of the law. The intention of the law was to prepare them to receive the Messiah. And so there's a little passage that I want to read to you about Jesus' interaction with some of the people who had misunderstood the purpose of the law and what he tells what he tells them about themselves about the nature of their relationship to the law because it will help us take seriously the condition of our slavery this is in John 8 verses 39 and following Jesus is in dialogue with the Pharisees and they are questioning him about who he is, and what power, what authority he has. And so they answered him, Abraham is our father. And Jesus said to them, if you were Abraham's children, you would be doing the works of Ab- that Abraham did. But now you seek to kill me, a man who has told you the truth I heard from God. This is not what Abraham did. You are doing the works your father did. They said to him, We were not born of sexual immorality. We have one Father, even God. And Jesus said to them, If God were your Father, you would love me, for I came from God. 
and I am here. I came not of my own accord, but he sent me. Why do you not understand what I say? It is because you cannot bear to hear my word. You are of your father, the devil, and your will is to do your father's desires. He was a murderer from the beginning and does not stand in the truth because there is no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks out of his own character, for he is a liar, the father of lies. But because I tell you the truth, you do not believe me. Which one of you convicts me of sin? If I tell the truth, why do you not believe me? Whoever is of God hears the words of God. The reason why you did not hear them is that you are not of God. And so you see Jesus, he's interacting with these Pharisees, these um, religious leaders who had become so self-satisfied in their ability to keep the law that they couldn't recognize the lawgiver when he was standing there talking to them. And so what happened was that they were actually operating as if that covenant, the Mosaic covenant, was enough for them. So much so that they could reject Jesus. They didn't need him. And this is what Paul says about the Galatians who are trying to add the works of the law to the work of Christ. He's saying that you are nullifying the grace of God. You are essentially living as if Jesus died for no purpose because you can do it. So you don't need me. You're independent. You're autonomous. But what you actually are is you're following the lies of Satan. Paul then moves into this event that centers this passage, this coming of age event. What is it that happened that transformed the law from being the provisional guardian to the gospel of receiving from God, the fullness that was intended. And as he's, as he's explaining this, the principle that he's kind of hoping that we'll see here is your freedom, it came at a cost. There's a cost to your freedom. Don't forsake it. Don't think that it's just some trite, immaterial, meaningless thing. This event, this center of your faith is everything. It came at a cost. And so we see in verses 4 and 5 that Jesus is the son that transforms the relationship that we have to the law. When the fullness of time had come, Jesus was sent. God sent forth his son. And in this description that follows, you see a few different reasons why only Jesus can do this. Only Jesus can fulfill the law. Only Jesus can transform our relationship with God to one of parent and child. And the first reason is that Jesus is the son of the father. He's eternal and divine. He is the one who was the word that created everything. He was with the Father from the beginning. He is the one who is able to keep the entirety of the law. He is perfect. He is eternal. He's divine. 
The second thing that we see that proves that only Jesus can do this and shows us kind of like the foolishness of rejecting what Jesus has done and living in what we can do is that just like we were born, Jesus was also born. He's truly God. He's also truly man. But he's born of a woman conceived by the Holy Spirit. Now, this isn't necessarily in the text, but it's the reason that Paul says it. He brings attention to Jesus' birth coming from a woman and not from a man and a woman. And it's reminiscent of Eve. It's reminiscent of the first parents who came out of nothing. They were formed from Eve formed from Adam. Adam formed from the dust. But it was the breath of God that created them. And so Paul is showing us that Jesus, he's the son of God, but he's also the second Adam. He's also the new Adam who doesn't inherit the rebellion that was woven into the fabric of the human creature after Adam and Eve ate of the fruit. But it's another chance for humanity to live dependently, to reject the serpent and live dependently on the Father. And so Jesus, born of a woman conceived by the Spirit, is the second chance. He's also born under the law. So God didn't just remove the law from the context that Jesus was born into. No, the law is good. The purpose of the law was to live dependently, was to obey God as a good father. And Jesus is born under that law so that he might fulfill it, so that he might be the one who actually comes of age under the law. And then finally, he came to redeem, to redeem through his life, his death, and his resurrection. And so this passage, it focuses in, it zooms in on Jesus as the Son in whom our sonship is based. And so this is where this idea of adoption that we're going to talk about in a second is attached to our justification. Because we are justified by faith, our faith is in Christ. And it is in Christ because he is the son in whom we become sons. We become heirs of the covenant. Now, one of the things that's really interesting about this, about this whole kind of sequence and the whole logic that Paul's using here, is that he's talking to us as if we are children, right? He's talking to us as if we still haven't received that event, and yet he's talking about events that have already happened. So he's what he's trying to say is that this, this grounding, this source of you relating to God as a child and God to you as your father, it is connected to an event that has already happened. There's nothing for you to do. 
You trust it. You receive it. And yet, because we live as if we still had to do that, we still had to earn it, we live as if our own lives guided under our stewardship would be better than lives in submission to God's will. He says we are still children, and we need to remember again what God has done through his Son. And this, for all of us, for, this is a universal call, is to, there's this objective truth, this objective reality of Jesus coming into the world, living, dying, resurrecting, historical events, and then your connection to those historical events. And this is the power. This is the power of being a child. This last section, the end of verse 5 all the way to verse 7, the power of being a child. All of this happened. Jesus came into the world, lived a perfect life, died a death that he didn't deserve so that we might receive adoption as sons. The purpose of God sending his son to be born of a woman under the law, to be put to death by tyrants, by rebels, was that so you would receive adoption as sons. Now, I want to pause for a second because I want to acknowledge that probably if you are a woman, or maybe if you're even not a woman, if you're a man, when you read the Bible, there's going to be times where the word son is used. And you're like, okay, does that include me? Am I like, do I need to become a son? Why doesn't he say sons and daughters? Why doesn't he say children? And there's sometimes where you can imply sons and daughters, and it's just kind of like how the language was used, that if you say one, you imply the other. But here, something very intentional is happening. Why? Paul is using this word son instead of daughter, instead of child. And it is connected to the inheritance. In this culture, inheritance was passed down to the son. And so the daughters didn't receive the inheritance. The sons received the inheritance, right? And then the daughters would marry and they would receive the inheritance of their husband, And that's how it worked. And this takes us back into something that is mind-blowing about the Christian faith. And it happened at the end of chapter 3, where he's talking about all of you who have been baptized into Christ, all of you who have put on Christ by faith, you are in Christ. And what that means is that there is neither Jew nor Greek. Right? So, In this setting, the Jews kind of were the powerful culture. And the Greeks or the Gentiles, the non-Jews, were the disadvantaged. There is is neither slave nor free. There is neither male nor female. You are all one in Christ Jesus. So what he's saying is that whether you're a man or a woman... 
you are now identified as the Son of God, heir of the promise. So for the first time in this culture, all of a sudden, women were elevated to being co-inheritors with the men. Gentiles and Greeks were elevated to being co-inheritors with the Jews. Slaves were elevated to being co-inheritors with their masters because they are all one in Christ, the Son. And so you see that receiving this adoption as sons is receiving an inheritance. It's receiving the blessing. It's receiving the promises that God has made to his people throughout time. And here's what it is. This is the blessing. This is the inheritance that God sends his spirit. That God sends his spirit. God the Father sending the Son, God the Father sending the Spirit to bring us our inheritance, to reclaim us as children, to fill us with life, to make us again dependent for everything that we have on God. And there's a lot that we can learn from what Paul says here about this sending of the Spirit. The first thing that we're going to look at is where he sends the Spirit. The Spirit is sent into our hearts. The Son was sent into the world. The Spirit sent into your heart. Now, what is a heart? It's an organ that pumps blood throughout your body. Metaphorically, though, in this context, it's the, it's the seat of power of all that you are. It's the decision-making principle. It's your will, but it's also your affections. It controls your desires, what you love, what you care about. The Spirit is sent there. So it's not just feelings. It's feelings and cognition. It's your affections and your will. What you want united to what you think, what you desire, what you yearn for. That is where the Spirit is sent. He's sent into our hearts. What does he do? He cries. This word is a crying out. It's a loud, fervent cry that the Spirit is making. Now think about this. The Spirit, the very same Spirit that was with God at the beginning, hovering over the face of the deep in creation. And when God spoke, it had enough power to create the universe, to create galaxies, to create planets, to create systems, to create you, to create me. How much more powerful is it when God cries out? When he pleads? When he screams? This is the kind of power that it takes to resurrect the human heart. To create in us a new life 
where there was only death. To create in us a desire to once more please God. Not because we need to, but because we want to. The power of God is in this cry. It's in this pleading. And this power goes into every corner of our being. So this cry, as the Spirit cries out in us, it works itself into every little crevice. Now, here's what we expect. We expect it to happen like all at once. But that's not how God chose to work this cry out in our lives. The cry goes into every corner of our desires progressively as we continue to trust God. As we continue to trust in Christ, we receive this cry. And the cry transforms us. And it goes with us in every stage of life. And you'll go through an experience where all of a sudden you will be reminded that you need that cry, that you need the Spirit's cry over you in order to depend on God and not yourself. And then you'll like think, okay, I think I've got the hang of this. And then you'll be confronted with another area of your life where you're prone, you're tempted, you are instinctually driven to depend on yourself. And the cry of God will go over that. And the cry of God will never leave because the Spirit is in your heart crying. And what is the Spirit crying? The Spirit is crying, Abba, Father. Abba, Father. Abba, this is the, it's a transliteration of the actual word that's used. And Father is kind of like, Okay, this is basically what it corresponds to. Now, Father, we don't quite have the right English word to correspond Abba and Father. Father has a little bit of different cultural connotations to it. It essentially carries this great intimacy that's paired with a great dependence. Now, some translations might have like daddy in there. I personally am not a huge fan of that translation because I'm a dad of three girls who all know how to say daddy in such a way to get what they want. And this isn't what that is. This is, this is not a way of manipulating to get your own will. Instead, what it's conveying is that there is a deep intimacy that calls to the deep being and essence of God as our Father. And that all of us, no matter how old we are, are dependent on God to be our Father. It's intimacy and dependence. And as the Spirit cries over all of our hearts, all of our lives, Abba, Father, We're transformed. We're transformed into the likeness of Christ. And we're transformed into people who depend on God. But we love it. We depend on God not because we need to, to earn something better, 
but because it's the best. It's what we're created for. It is what fulfills every desire, every longing of the human heart is to have God as your dear father, as your beloved father. And so an example of this, what this looks like in real, in real life, I was thinking about this um, when I first was serving as a pastor of this church seven years ago or so. Um, we had someone who grew up in a Roman Catholic church. And what she knew about God is that you had to earn his favor. Like you had to perform. You had to do the religious things in order to get the love of God in return. And what she kind of learned as a young child is that she was never going to be able to be good enough to do that. She failed over and over again. And so she grew bitter. She grew angry. She started to think of God as a tyrant who withheld things. And so she said, basically, like, I'm just going to exchange that for, I'm going to live my own life, do what I want to do. And as she did that, she made wreckage of her life until one day a friend told her about the gospel. And it was like she had heard all the words, but they meant something completely different. And it set her free in a moment. And her life was turned around dramatically in a moment. She understand, understood for the first time that God was her father, given to her by faith in Jesus. And I was meeting with her, and this was like early on, and she was like really upset. She's like, oh, I guess this means I have to stop cussing now. <laughs> and that was that old principle. I have to. I need to. If I don't, God's going to be disappointed with me. And so I simply said to her, listen, you can cuss or don't. But what you're going to learn is that your heart is different. What you want to do is different. And so you won't even ask that question, can I cuss or can I, do I not have to cuss? That's totally irrelevant. The question of freedom is how can I best bring my good father glory with my life? How can I live in such a way to give him thanks because he has given me everything? And as a child of God, you are free to do that. You don't have to do that in one particular way. You don't have to do that with your job. You don't have to do that with your family. You don't have to do that with your morality. You don't have to do that with your relationships. You don't have to do that with your mental health. You can do it in sickness. You can do it in weakness. You can do it in poverty, in joblessness. You can remind yourself that you are dependent on a good father. And he's given you everything that you need. And that you are invited into participating in the life of Christ by bringing God glory in all of those circumstances. And there's a great freedom. A great freedom. Because you no longer have to do it. You want to. 
You desire to. And as you live that out, you continue to hear that cry, Abba, Father, go out over every fiber of your being, transforming all of who you are. Until one day, at the return of Christ, we have the full inheritance. Because right now, the spirit given to us that's crying, Abba, Father, it's a down payment on the fullness that we are promised to enjoy with God without sin in this world, without hearts that are distrusting, but at peace, at rest with being God's children forever. Please pray with me. Father, we thank you for your word. And we thank you for your spirit that goes with your word and brings your word into our hearts, into our desires, into our wants. And God, I ask that you would help us to look for, to pay attention to the various ways that you are calling us to enjoy the freedom that you have purchased for us. To enjoy being your children, Lord. And that we would abandon those areas of our lives where we are living under a law, where we are living as slaves to wicked masters, We would trust, Lord, that your cry, your claim on us as your children has set us free. Despite what our circumstances might try and tell us, despite what that same serpent is trying to get us to believe, Lord, that we can trust you. And Lord, we do. We look forward to that day when our trust is realized when we see the fullness of all that you have promised to us and we are dwelling in you or with you forever. We pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen.